All right, uh, I'd love to say a word of prayer, and we're going to continue in teaching through the book of Genesis. Uh, we have now found ourselves at a quite familiar place for many, so I'm looking very forward to these next couple of weeks. So uh, would you pray with me? Gracious God, I bless you for the gift of gathering, the gift of being your body, the church, but that we can take this time and gather together, and hopefully, God, my prayer is that we would open our hearts, open our minds to what you have for us. Uh, ways in which you want to teach us, move us, guide us, uh, bring us along, grow us up, uh, expand our hearts that we would have bigger lives. That is my hope and my prayer. So God, um, may the meditation and the posture of my heart and God, the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you and you alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Uh, so we have, at this point, arrived at the Sunday school and flannel board favorite, Noah and his ark full of animals. Uh, before we dig in, though, I want to do a couple of things to highlight as we step into this. Uh, first, this story is anything but a children's story. Uh, many have argued it's a story of genocide with God commanding the controls. But for those who cry, angry, genocidal God, there's actually nothing in the text that speaks of God as being angry. In the text, what you read over and over is God is heartbroken. This God is heartbroken, but there's nowhere in there that you have an angry God pushing the detonation button. Um, that point alone, I would hope, raises many, many questions uh, for us and for you. And I would argue there is so much more going on. And even within that, I want to thank a number of you for sending questions. Apparently, this series is digging up all sorts of questions as which the text is doing the its job, then spirit is moving. We should have lots of questions, and I'm grateful for all of them. I love it. That's what we need to be about because there is so much going on. So this story is way more complicated than we can do in an hour and a half together this morning. So what we're going to do is I, I want to um, just point out that this story has confounded scholars um, for as long as it's been studied. Uh, so what I'm going to do is this morning, we're going to zoom out, and I want to take a 30,000-foot view of this story. Then next week, we're going to sink into the details, because I recognize the last couple of weeks, I, I think, have been a bit heavy, heady and, uh, as well. And so I want to zoom out and try and take a bigger picture of what this story means to the Israelite people as a whole. Then next week, we're going to actually sink into the, some of the details of the flood because then we can get into some of the minutiae and what more is going on. So we'll do a bit of both. But this morning, zooming out. But I want to quickly take a look at where we've been in Genesis. Then I want to point out why context matters in all of this, and then I want to ask the very important question, what did the Israelites, what were they asking about this story? That's really important. 
What were they asking about this story? First, where we've been. Genesis 1 is a poetic, Genesis 1 is a poetic, cosmic-sized creation story which unfolds in a much different way than the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, of which there are many. Genesis 1, as we have it, is understood to be constructed while the Hebrew people were in exile in Babylon. That's when it was edited and kind of put together as we have it. So in Genesis, when you actually, when you study it, there's a clear subversion of the Babylonian creation story known as the Enuma Elish, which was written before our Genesis account. And I know for some people, they're like, excuse me? Yep. Now, Genesis 2 is largely understood to be telling the origin story of Israel. It's telling the origin story of Israel, so it's not about individuals, it's about a community or a people, specifically the people of Israel. We read it and we see names Adam, we see names Eve, which they are names and they are not names in the text, they're other words doing some other things, but it is telling the origin story of this people Israel. So in Genesis 2, what we see too is th there is the cosmic creator of Genesis 1 who is now found as deeply personal. We get this intimate picture of the divine and we even see a picture of the divine walking with huma humanity. So it's like went from Genesis 1, the cosmic-sized God, and now we give a picture that this God is also as close as our very breath. Are you with me? Um, and so then God walks with us in, in humanity in this shalom, it's called this peace that is the most holistic sense of peace. Then in Genesis 3 and 4, we have stories of how the relationships between the divine and humanity, humanity and one another, humanity with oneself, and humanity with creation become corrupted and broken. We, we see this in Genesis 3 and 4. Now, I get that it's here that our Western American minds might get a bit befuddled because many of us have likely heard these stories as kids replete with a flannel board, coloring pages, and kind of that precious moment takeaway. But it's not, and, and especially like, oh, these are cute lessons about individuals who screwed everything up for everyone for all time, but... God still loves us if we agree to the chosen denominations, doctrines, and dogmas. In that scenario, the focus can quickly become personal piety while largely ignoring our communal responsibility. And that can be a problem. Now, this is really crucial because Genesis 4 through 6 includes genealogies, our favorite things, but they are really important because these genealogies and the ancient Hebrew writing are raising a very important question. What would happen if humanity continuously ignored or numbed the ache that is within us that is intending to call us back to the Creator? What would happen if we ignore or just numb that ache within us? What will happen to the movement of creation? This question is both universal and it's deeply personal. 
It continues to stare us in the soul today, pleading with us, please pay attention. Now, this takes us to today and our flannel board story. Uh, I got this flannel board when I was uh, pastoring in Muskegon, and I had the little one. This is the little board. There's a larger one, but this was like half of my annual budget when I was in Muskegon. Working the way we were, it was like, oh man, I got to save up to get a flannel board. Um, but at home, I have another one that has an inside, like you could build a temple, the, the background is, and I have lots, I have a whole box full of cutouts so we can build lots of stories. If you would like to play with my flannel board, you may come and talk with me. And we could probably set that up. Um, <laughs> that's ridiculous. It's down in my office, though, and I will say that my sons like to come down and play with my flannel board. All right, so we have the flannel board. We're going to get to that. It's really good, but here's the thing. I get this Noah in his ark full of animals is probably familiar to most of us. Even people who are not that familiar with the Bible have heard this kind of rumbling. So to help us sink into the story and hopefully in a fresh way get fresh eyes on this, let's start with, I want to start with a couple of Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament as some people call it, scholars, uh, Peter Enns and Jared Bias on how to better read this story with ancient eyes in order to open up our present hearts. So they say this, the most familiar parts of the Bible are often the parts we have the hardest time reading through ancient eyes. And everyone is familiar with the story of the flood, Noah, the ark, animals marching on two by two, basically the lifeblood of every Sunday school class, flannel graph, and coloring page. We suppose it can't be helped. After all, animals on a boat with a rainbow above seem friendly enough. Plus, the story comes with a nice lesson about God's faithfulness. Only, it's not a children's story, and the way it is presented to children tames it to the point of distortion. We might, we might want to read this story as a scientific account of the past, arguing whether it was a global flood or a local flood, or wondering if the extinction of dinosaurs can be chalked up to a lack of room on the ark. But none of these questions help us see the story as ancient, ancient Israelites would have seen it. Questions we ask of the story, details we want information on, they did not ask, did not care about, because they know it is not the point of the story whatsoever. How are we doing? Okay? Okay. To help us take off our modern lenses, we need to be aware that there were a number of flood stories very similar to the biblical one, and the biblical flood story was written after these other stories. This is similar to how the biblical creation story was also written after several neighboring creation stories. What the ancient writers worked with that we likely have not studied, and I understand that, is a literary device called borrowed cultural narrative. To get at this, 
We'll quickly peer into two other flood stories that are more familiar, then ask an important question that the ancient people would be asking. These other two flood stories were written in the Akkadian language, which is the great-granduncle of Hebrew. And it's a language spoken by ancient Assyrians and Babylonians, oh, ha, both being two of ancient Israel's biggest enemies. Hint, hint. Right? Oh, okay. Now, we know these stories by the names of the main characters, Atrahasis and Gilgamesh. Anyone ever heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh? Uh, okay, sure. Now, these two stories will help us draw out the question the ancient people would be asking. This is important because modern people tend to ask, what happened and how did it happen? We tend to think of the Bible writers as journalists standing at the scene of a story and they're reporting the what and the how. But this can confine us to proof and certainty, which is really tough sledding when we're talking about being thousands and thousands of years removed from when this stuff was even written down. And it can lead us to asking questions of the Bible that the Bible does not ask of itself, which is a big deal. Or questions the original audience was not asking because it was not interesting to them. Are we tracking? Okay. On to the question that would be asked of the flood story. Why was there a flood? Why was there a flood? In the Atrahasis story, the high god Enlil wanted to destroy humans because they were making too much noise. <laughs> no kidding. So the hero, Atrahasis, with the help of the water god, Ea, escaped the wrath of Enlil by building a large boat in which to save humanity. Sound familiar? Yeah, the other story has the character Gilgamesh seeking out the secret to immortality, which leads him to Utten Pishtim, this story's Noah-like figure. He tells Gilgamesh that his immortality came through special circumstances. He was the sole survivor of a great flood. So Utna Pishtim is instructed by the god Ea to build a boat with specific dimensions and get as many animals on board as possible. He did and survived the flood with the animals. Again, sound familiar? This is why this literary uh, understanding of this concept of doing borrowed cultural narrative, that's what they're working with in this. Now, for the ancient peoples, which includes the Israelites, the point was to use the flood stories to talk about how they saw the world and how they saw their place in the world. It also gives insight into what their gods are like. And for the Israelite people, it reveals how they believed their God was different and why their God alone was worthy of their devotion and worship. Are you with me? Okay. Now, remember, really key, in our Genesis story, how humanity had continuously for generation after generation after generation disregarded and disobeyed the divine. 
Humanity chose selfishness, which became a ripple effect for all sorts of chaos. And all of this chaos leads to verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now in Hebrew, that word for inclination means imagination, which I pointed out and we sank into last week. The imagination was being directed towards selfish and wicked ways. So as humanity no longer chose to bake their imagination in the goodness, grace, and love of the divine, which takes us up to the flood, which a flood wiping out creation, humanity, sounds completely bonkers to our modern minds. But the very biting language within the story tells us that humanity has stopped choosing God. So this heartbroken God announces we need to do a reboot of creation. This is where we also see a rather significant difference in these ancient stories as it pertains to what the gods were like. Although there was a flood coming that would reboot creation, the Israelite God was simultaneously working with this guy Noah to save, to save. And he says, if you listen to me, I'm going to instruct you on how to participate in a new beginning. Very different. In the other stories, the gods are angry at the humans and are trying to wipe them out, and humanity kind of gets together and say, what can we do to save ourselves from the gods? Very different. Noah listens. Noah listens and obeys, building the famous ark and filling it with animals to make the first portable zoo. Now, I have that on my board. I have some elephants in two Giraffes in two, lions in two, uh, Sparky the dog, because of course Sparky the dog came on the ark. There are some cats in two that are sitting on the lion because they're trying to sneak in because God did not instruct to put cats on the ark. I can't find that in the text, but it's got to be there somewhere. Uh, <laughs> if you love cats, I'm sorry. Sorry, Ben. Sorry, sorry. Lions are cats. They're just bigger, too, so they're... All right, better move on. Uh, and we have a duck that's surfing. Also not in the text. My flannel board, I can play as I want. Now, um, this is where, at this point, though, we could do a deep dive into how the flood narrative actually mirrors the Genesis 1 account of creation. It's really, really fascinating, and it's for us to get coffee and to go into all of that detail, but actually what you see in the flood story is it mirrors the creation of Genesis 1. The words take you right there, and you just see, oh, it's happening again. Now, for the sake of focus, and because the last number of weeks have been, been again, a bit heady, I want to get some sticky points going and we'll just do that. So let's zoom out and look at how the ancient Israelites held this story in light of the larger story of this people. 
So Bible quiz question for our friend Freddie. If you have not been with us, we have our friend Freddie from Sunday School fame. He hangs out in the back, and he often has questions during our time together, and we don't want to miss his hand up, and we want to call on Freddie. So if you will, uh, I've got a question for Freddie. Freddie, can you name a few of the guys who are considered the patriarchs of the faith? Freddie says... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Gold star, Freddy. That is correct. Anyone have a question? Huh, why do we not consistently see the name in the scriptures as a father of the faith being Noah? Why? This question helps us move through the story and grab onto some handles to better understand the story in broader, bigger ways. Noah obeys God, gathers his family and a bunch of animals onto the ark. Uh, real quick, just as a side note, how many, how many animals on the ark? Two of every kind. Mm, nope. It says in there, yes, in some ways, but it actually says there's more than that because on the other side of the flood, uh, Noah's going to sacrifice some animals. So they're actually, if you read the text, the text actually said there's more. So even though the boat, by its dimensions, is really big, there is no way it is big enough. But that's for our science Western mind going, whoa, no, I can't make sense. Sorry, <laughs> not the point. Um, anyways, Noah obeys God, gathers his family, a bunch of animals, onto the ark, and then, and this is really interesting, Genesis 7, 16 says this, then the Lord shut him in the ark. This, and then on the other side, the waters recede, and the other side of the flood, we read this. And Noah opened the covering of the ark. Now, Rabbi Simcha Bear teaches how this reveals that there are two worlds. There is the old world created by God in which he places humanity in a garden. Humanity is invited to be fruitful and multiply and then to steward this brilliant Tov, which is the word good, good dynamic creation forward, yes? But humanity takes the old world off course by way of self-interest. Now here, it says that Noah opens the door again, signaling to a new world. So the question then that is just flashing in our faces, how will this new world unfold? Are you with me? Genesis 9.1 says this, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, what? Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? It should. Next, God makes a covenant or a promise with, a promise of peace with Noah. And what does he mark this promise with, Freddie? A rainbow. Another gold star for Freddie. He's on his way to a large Snickers bar. Genesis 9, 12, and 13 says this, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my what? 
rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Here's the word. In Hebrew, the word for rainbow, if you will, is the word kesheth. Go ahead and say kesheth. Kesheth. It means bow and archers. It appears 76 times in the Hebrew scriptures. Only here in this story is it ever used for rainbow, that it gets translated as rainbow. Every other use, it means bow, and it means archers for shooting a bow, and arrow, using a bow to shoot arrows. That should be like ding, 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 here's the thing. The Hebrew language is about images. It's picture-based. The Hebrew languages. So it's painting a picture for people. That's what's being done here. So it looks like this. Next slide. Okay. This is a picture of a bow, right? It's giving people a picture. Next slide. We're getting closer. Boom. Next slide. Boom. Next slide. Ah. Do you see what just happened? The ancient people would understand that God has hung his bow in the clouds. In the covenant, the promise is, I am hanging up violence for all time with us. Are you with me? Whoo, come on. Now, this is really important because it's a bold statement. This will have us, should be spinning, and as God says, I am hanging up my bow in the clouds and putting that away, that's a bold statement because in the beginning of the story it says this in chapter 6, 11, and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. Circle that. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Remember what God initially filled the earth with. What did God fill creation with? Tov, good, goodness, the dynamic nature of tov, of good. What does humanity fill the earth with? Violence, which is static. Oh, oh boy. Since humanity has corrupted their ways in the old world, the question is, could they do that again in the new world? Now, I, I can't be alone in thinking the diag diagnosis of a violent society is frighteningly close to ours today, correct? As it pertains to violence, our society has walked the ways of the old world rather than God's new world. And yet God has definitively, this is why it's a bold thing, hung up his bow. God does not see the answer to violence to simply inflict more violence. Not the answer. This is why I said it's bold, because if you're God, you could argue that fear is the best tool at God's disposal. You know, keep people guessing on whether or not the divine is going to snap and smite people, wipe things out. But this God has hung up the bow and says, I'm not going to do that. We're not going to do violence in order to win ever again. Are you with me? Woo-wee. 
I have some things we can talk about later within that. But at the beginning of the story, we're told that Noah in this was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. So now what I want to do is let's look at Noah in the new world. That was Noah in the old world. Okay, now let's look at Noah in the New World, verse 20 of chapter 9. Noah, keyword phrase, a man of the soil proceeded to plant a vineyard. Now, that of the soil is from Genesis 2. And by the way, in Genesis 2, why I say it's not about individuals, the word or the name, if you will, Adam in Hebrew, guess what it means? Of the soil. So you know how this verse reads in Hebrew? If you're literal, like, write it down. Noah, the Adam man, proceeded to plant a garden. Are you with me? Do you see what's happening here? Oh, it's just like the old world's beginning. The new world is starting the same. Here we go again. The man of the soil plants a garden or is in, put in a garden. So we have Noah... Planting a vineyard is credited with the discovery of viticulture, grape growing, and viniculture, winemaking. It's fascinating and fruitful. It's a good pastor's joke right there, I'm telling you what. If you heard, I initially heard a moan, that was my wife. Uh, uh, All the time, it never ends. So what's next? Okay, he plants a vineyard. What happens next? When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay naked inside his tent. It's funny, I don't remember this part being on the flannel board. Huh. And I said to my wife, you can ask her yesterday, I said, in my box of characters and stuff, There's a naked guy with a little blanket on him. I could bring him up and we could, never mind. We'll just, we got it, we got it, but it's there. Okay, Noah has discovered the soothing, consoling, and enlivening effects of wine, which in their very essence is not bad, but it can be abused to do what? Anyone recall what Noah's dad, Lamech, said he hoped his son would bring comfort from? The toil, the ache of the soil. The work, the ache. And and Lamech says, here is Noah, which his name means comfort. He will bring us comfort from the toil. That's my hope anyways, Lamech said. Where is the ache supposed to lead humanity? Back to our Creator. Hooey, are you with me? Here, what does Noah do? He numbs the ache with wine. So then we get uh, verses 22 to 25, and we're cruising. Ham, it's pronounced ham. I know we want ham, but there's no ham for the Jewish people. Sorry. Uh, Ham, that was right off the cuff. You have to tell me not to go off the cuff. (laughs) Ham, the father of Canaan, notice how there are three sons, but Ham gets told, we have to somehow know that he's the father of Canaan. Huh. Saw his father's nakedness 
and, took his, and told his brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it across their shoulders, then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned, away, turned the other way so that they would not see their father's what? Nakedness. Anyone remember what the leading word, that's another literary device, what was the leading word in Genesis 3? Nakedness. Oh, ding, 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 it just keeps screaming at us here. Nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, I love how they even word it, when he awoke from his wine, and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brothers. This is one of those texts that just are pleading with us to pay attention to context. The Hebrew scriptures, as we have them, were edited and organized sometime during the exile in Babylon. This is one of the many hints that the initial writing of this story, of this portion of Genesis, was likely during the monarchy, during the kings. Think King David especially. Now, this is like scholars have done the thing and they go, yeah, we know that initial writings were done for this part of the story during the monarchy. So, what people, what people group, anyone? People group occupied what would become the promised land who God instructs the Hebrew people to drive out. Canaanites, who are one of the biggest enemies of Israel and a thorn in their side until... King David comes along and gets rid of them. So what, contextually, what does this piece of the Genesis story give the reader? It gives a backstory for the Canaanites. How their origin is from what? A curse. Now if you remember, these are Hebrew people, the authors are Hebrew writers writing to Hebrew people, so what are they doing? They're going to do commentary on their enemies and say, we'll tell you where they came from. They came from a curse. Are you with me? What we're going to find in chapter 10 when we get there of Genesis is we're going to learn a, a, about a bunch of their other enemies and we'll also learn their origin. What we tend to learn from these texts is what Israel thought about their enemies. Oh, we'll tell you what we think about our enemies. We'll tell you their origin story. And guess what? None of it is good. Of course not. Is this, so you see how this is about a community and not individuals. Is this clicking? We're talking about a community, Israel. They're, they're telling their story. Now remember that after Eve and Adam ate the fruit, their eyes were opened and they saw their nakedness and they were ashamed. Here, Ham sees Noah's nakedness, but is he ashamed? No. Instead, like a middle school boy, he runs out giggling and gets his brothers and says, come and see dad, he's naked. I, I mean, this is a huge warning sign in the story. And it's a huge flashing sign saying, pay attention. Because for the ancient Hebrew people to view someone's nakedness is shameful. But what is even more shameful is to cause others to view someone's nakedness. That's even more shameful. Real 
quick, fast forward to Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. He says, oh, you know how you kind of uh, uh, subvert wickedness or evil or someone trying to take advantage of you? If someone wants to sue you for your shirt, give them your coat as well. Why does Jesus say this? Because they have two garments in, in first century Israel, and if you give them your shirt and you take and give your coat or other way around, guess what you're doing in the court system? You're standing there naked. But who's to be shamed? The one who causes the nudity, which would be the one taking you to court. So Jesus is saying, what you do is you just strip down and say, you want to have it? Here you go. You just made me naked in front of all these people. And that person would be begging and pleading, please don't take, please don't take off your coat. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Sorry, sorry. Let's back up. Let's rethink this whole thing. Jesus is like, oh, so great. It's a third way. There's this side and there's this side. And Jesus says, I think we can be more creative in how we get after this. Someone trying to take advantage of you. Someone trying to put you down. Someone trying to oppress you. We will do this differently. Now, this is why, so now you see why Noah is furious and curses Ham's son, Canaan. Why is he angry? Because, because Ham has acted in shameful ways and embarrassed and done all this, and so Noah's ticked off, and so he curses his Ham's son. So this context helps us hang up our modern eyes to read it from an Israelite ancient Hebrew perspective. Now we're going to continue to lean into this part of the story. In the old world, humanity chose to take of the fruit for selfish purposes, which led to viewing their nakedness in shame, and that led to a curse. And now in this new world, we have humanity taking fruit for selfish purposes, which leads to shameful nakedness, which leads to a curse. Oy vey. Oh, here we go again. Now, let's drive it home with a key question. Freddie, who is considered the first patriarch of the faith? Abraham. Abraham. He is our next study. We're going to do a deep dive into Abraham. Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons has... I am one of them, and so are you. <laughs> Off we go. Goodness, it's still in there. Still in there. Riverbend Bible Baptist Church all the many years ago for me. All right. Now, <laughs> hooey, eager beavers. I got a Snickers for learning that song. Anyways, but for now, let's peek at two answers as to why Abraham gets father status. We're just going to quick peek at this because we're going to do a deep dive into Abraham. Uh, chapter 12 of Genesis. We move into his story. The Lord had said to Abram, he will later be called Abraham. That has immense meaning. We'll get into that later. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. A somewhat similar summons to that one of Noah. Noah, obey what I'm going to tell you right now. And I'll bless you. Like, there's some things going on here. But here's the thing, there's something different. There's a dynamism to this interaction with Abram. Then, 
in chapter 18 of Genesis, when it stated that God, we read in the text that God's going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but Abraham argues with God on behalf of righteousness, don't do it. Don't destroy the entire city, even if there is a sliver of righteousness in the town, is what Abraham argues. And then what we will learn from Abraham's story is his immense value he places on hospitality and generosity. Noah doesn't argue on behalf of anyone. And what is the theme of this section of Genesis? Am I my brother's keeper? Where do we find Noah in the story in the new world? He is in the midst of a garden. Will this be good news for everyone? What do we find him? Drunk and naked in his tent by himself. His wife is not even in the, we don't even know in the story. Where's his wife? He takes and says, I will just be selfish with this. That's what we get in the story. Oh, fascinating. What we find in these early stories is a God that desires to partner with humanity in the flourishing of the good, good world God has created. The basic invitation is love God, love your neighbor. It's like the basic invitation moving things forward. God continues to bless humanity and places humanity in the midst of all this brilliant, dynamic blessing. Be fruitful, multiply, and steward creation forward in ways that are good news for all people. That's the summons. Now, here's the thing. Watch how this comes together. Although the story crashes into this, next text, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Watch how the divine alters the ending. Then, even though, next slide, then in 8.21, now we read this. Even though the, every inclination of the human heart is evil, God will never again flood the earth. Even though. God says a promise. It's not, you think God's like, mom, we're going to backtrack. Apparently, we're going to keep doing this. But he's like, it doesn't mean I'm going to do this. Even though there is such a wild grace and compassion and desire to be partnership with humanity for God, this is how this Genesis flood story is vastly different than the other flood stories because you have a God who just refuses to give up on humanity and says, I'm just not going to go the way of the other gods that are just saying, we'll just wipe you out. We'll just wipe you out even though humanity continues to work in chaos and take the story off course. To me, this is where it's incredibly challenging, and yet it is a needed call for the church today. Some questions for us. What will we do with what is given to us and what we have? And who will this be good news for? Here's the thing, Noah was obedient and built a boat, but his boat was good news for so few. 
Noah's story leaves me dizzy with questions and challenged as it pertains to being the church for a world that is flooded with chaos, pain, suffering, and sin sickness. We find God so early on in the story promising to hang up the capacity to destroy the earth. This is really important. Many people ask, how could there possibly be a God when there is so much chaos in the world? Anyone heard that? But the story only says that God makes a covenant, a promise not to destroy the world. It doesn't say that humanity won't destroy the world. Thank you. Doesn't say that in the story. Yet the entire summons of the biblical narrative is summed up in love God and love others. Be good stewards of what you've been given that is good news for the community, for the more, for the witness of one another. That is, we are invited to be co-partners with the divine in restoring, renewing, and reconciling the chaos and corruption. We are not owners. We are partners tasked with stewarding life into the new creation which Jesus has inaugurated. Jesus has crushed the curse. He has swallowed sin and death. Our invitation is to be faithful in following Jesus into the new creation, which is a renewed, restored, and reconciled creation. Paul, the writer Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus after the resurrection and ascension, Paul will later instruct the church, watch this, in Corinth. Paul says to the church, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Now, not will, has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Katalage. Katalage is the Greek word for reconciliation. It's a banking term for the adjusting of a difference. Our lives, our call is to adjust the difference. You're in debt, not anymore. Because God has done that for us in Christ. The debt you carried is no more. So I am asking you, church, to do that as well. That is the ministry I'm giving you. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him them, and he has placed in us, as the literal, placed in us the message of reconciliation in us to live it, to embody it, to be it, to teach it, to walk in it. Right after this verse, it'll talk about us being ambassadors for Christ. Presboio is that word, ambassadors, and it means to be older, to be an elder, to be mature. Do you know what that, to be an ambassador for Christ is to grow up, is to mature in Christ which then leads us to be reconcilers. 
couple more questions. What will we do with the internal ache? And then will we have ears to hear the cry from the ache of others? What I get asked a lot, and I completely understand it, this is why community. Because me without you is just too small. Me without you is just too small. We have to do this together. There is a bigness and a dynamism to the more, the community, the working together in doing this. I'm not asking any one person to save the world. I'm inviting us to be the church for Walker and beyond. I'm asking us to love well, which is to be reconcilers and to work for reconciliation through the love and power and grace and peace of Jesus the Christ. Reconciling happens in the form of community because it can't be done, hear this please, it cannot be done dualistically. It's a third way kind of living, which Jesus taught and modeled and lived out. Much of our world lives in a way of duality. Take a side. There's this side or there's that side. Which side will you be on? Reconciling is to choose love and grace and say, I see you. You've got some interesting points. And you have some things that I think are sideways. You, I see you. You have some very interesting points and some things that are probably a bit sideways. I wonder if we might sit down and talk and figure out how did you get to where you understand it this way. I wonder how you understood it this way. And I wonder if we sit together and talk about it, we might come to a thicker, fuller, deeper, wider, reconciled way of living. We are to work towards harmony together, and that is really, really messy. Here's the thing. To pick a side in a dualistic worldview can lead to fast growth. Just be clear and definitive that our way is the way, and you can see things hop. If I were to stand up here and just say, this is the way, I'm just crystal clear on it, I won't back down this one, my side, our side, and I'm really clear on it, you can get people going, great, we're, we're crystal clear. We don't have to think about it. There's no ambiguity. Let's just go, and you can see fast growth. But to be a people of the third way, to choose the divine way is the way that is slow, it's difficult, and working in reconciliation is messy, and that's why so many people don't choose it. Who wants that? Oh, I don't want to do that work. Whew, that seems like a lot of oh, weightiness. And I have to be really attentive. And I have to sink into the relationship. And I have to do this putting together. Mm, that sounds inconvenient. Doesn't sound comfortable. No thanks. But it is the call, the summons, the movement, the meta movement of the scriptures to work in this way, to walk with the divine in shalom, which means to work in community towards reconciliation. A practice is the Eucharist. Communion, the Lord's Supper. 
Eucharist means you is the Greek for good. It's the Greek's version of the Hebrew good, tov. You is good. Charis is gift, the good gift, which is dynamic. Why Eucharist? So what we see is the life of Jesus who says, I will break myself open and pour myself out for the healing of the world and then says, do this in remembrance of, in honor of, in worship of me. Break yourself open, pour yourself out for the reconciliation the healing of a world that continues to just crack on itself. So we come and we do more of a ritual piece of saying we remember, we think, we honor, we reflect, we contemplate the gift, the sacrifice of Jesus. And then we embody it and we do that in the world for our coworkers, for our family members who continue to talk about that thing that drains the life out of me and I need strength and I need perseverance to continue to work towards more. And when my neighbor comes over and here he goes again on his complaints about the mailbox, hokey peats, can I just not accidentally veer the snowplow off the road and take that whole thing out. No, you cannot in Jesus. Instead, it's going to be coffee. And it's going to be in just excruciating, but bigness of love and grace and work. Because all my heart's desire, the ache, is for my creator and my ache is for him and them and all of us to find our way back to God. So we're going to open the table on this side and we're going to open the table on this side and there will be a couple people who are going to serve and you'll hear something like this is a picture, a symbol of the body of Jesus gifted for you. This is a picture, a symbol, an image of the blood of Jesus poured out for you. As you take this, reflect, remember, and then please, would you embody, would you say yes to this way in the world as we go? That would be the hope. And so uh, we'll a couple of us here, here, and then there are gluten-free uh, on this side if you so needed. And uh, what I would love to do is I'd love to just start uh, with serving our musicians before they go up and uh, invite us to sing in worship as well.